If you have uh, your Bibles uh, with you, why don't you open up to Colossians 2. That's where we'll, we'll be this morning. Uh, if you don't have your Bibles, uh, don't worry. We'll have the, the verses up uh, that we'll be talking through uh, on the screen behind me. But uh, as, you're, as you're turning there, uh, I wanted to, uh, to mention that an article that, that came out in, in Wired magazine uh, this past week. Uh, Stephen Hawking, the, the famous uh, astrophysicist or scientist, uh, made a, a prediction or a, a prophetic utterance, uh, if you would, if we could call it that. He said that, that he thinks humans have 100 years uh, to escape planet Earth uh, if we are to survive as a species. So, uh, as part of this new uh, television show on BBC called Tomorrow's World, uh, Professor Hawking said that he thinks due to climate change, uh, overdue asteroid strikes, uh, epidemics, and population growth, humans will need to find a new planet to populate within a single lifetime. Uh, and he's changed that from the thousand-year estimate that he gave last year uh, in November. Uh, so, and Hawking isn't the only uh, scientist who's who's advocated for, uh, I guess, what they would call a multi-planet species. Um, other uh, CEOs and, and leaders, uh, such as Elon Musk, uh, has grand plans to launch space colonies uh, in the next 100 years, and NASA has said that its Mars missions uh, could help to put humans uh, permanently on other planets. So, uh, now, there, there's been a lot of talk about climate change, because since Trump has taken office, uh, his administration has removed climate change policies and, and reference from all of the, the White House uh, web, web pages. And, and as a result, thousands of scientists have gone and marched on Washington, and they, they marched for science, so to speak. Uh, another neuroscientist uh, and, and Nobel, uh, Nobel laureate, uh, Edward Moser, said Professor Hawking has emphasized the need for science in society at a time when communicating uh, science is more important than ever. Uh, Mr. Moser says that one example is climate change, which is something that scientists have to fight against uh, other types of evidence for a long time. So I, I think you shouldn't take for granted that science is perceived as the source of the right answer. Uh, you have to explain to the public how science works. That's what he said. And that you have to educate the public. Additionally, he said that science uh, should not be an elitist activity. It's something that should be driven by society for the benefit of society, and we should aim for everyone to agree with that. So you, so you hear uh, in this article uh, that they, uh, this group of, of intellectuals, of scientists, so to speak, uh, are, are advocating uh, and pushing for uh, a single uh, idea uh, single governing idea uh, to be the source of authority, and, and what is that governing uh, authority that they're advocating for? Science. Yeah, they're saying that should be the ultimate authority. That should be what society builds itself upon. Uh, that's the the governing idea, uh, and ultimately. Uh, Climate change is part of that, and overdue asteroid strikes, I guess, is another part of that. All of these uh, things that they're trying to, to take into account, but you see how one singular idea has a lot of implications. If you believe uh, something to be true, you're going to live based upon that truth. So we, we have a, a big decision on, on what we will uh, believe to be true or not true. Uh, and interestingly enough, every single worldview, uh, every single religion, uh, has to has to explain four things. No, number one, they have to explain how we got here, uh, right? Uh, secondly, they have to explain what has gone wrong. Uh, 
uh, everybody tries to have an explanation for that. And, you know, psychology, uh, there's hundreds of schools of psychology and all of them have a different explanation for what is wrong with man. Uh, they can't even agree with, with what's wrong. And so if we agree that something is wrong, we may not agree what is wrong, but something is wrong, we have to answer that question, what's wrong? But then also we have to provide a solution. Uh, that's the third thing that every, every worldview will present. Uh, how we got here, what's wrong, and then how do we fix it? Well, what's the remedy for what ails us? Uh, and then ultimately, uh, the fourth and last thing that every worldview will present and proclaim is, where, where are we headed? Uh, what are we moving towards? Uh, and you see that here with, with science as, as the ultimate authority. Uh, you see, hey, what, what's their explanation for how we got here? Evolution. What, what's the, their explanation of what's wrong? Uh, we are the problem. We're overpopulating the planet. We're using up all of the resources. So what's the solution? What do we have to do? Yeah, we have to go find a new planet. Uh, and if we don't find a new planet, what's, what's the doomsday apocalypse? What are we heading towards if we don't fi- uh, obey that remedy? Yeah, we're going to die. We're going to perish on this planet, so we have to go to another planet. So you see every single worldview will have those four components. Uh, and that's where it's, it's also really important for us as, as the church, as believers, to understand how does the Christian worldview explain that? See, the Christian worldview explains that we are here because God created us in his image. Uh, and then what, what's gone wrong? Well, man has fallen into sin. We have rebelled against our creator. Uh, and what, what's the remedy? For our sin, our rebellion against God, it's not ourselves, but it's outside of ourselves. It's God sending his son, Jesus, to die on the cross and pay the penalty for our sins to save us. That's the the remedy. And what are we working towards is getting back to where things were initially, and even better than where things were initially. We're we're getting back to a point where Jesus comes to rule and reign on the earth and establishes creation as it should have been and better than it was originally. That's what we are are working towards. And, and as you think back to the beginning in Genesis, God created the heavens and the earth in, in six days. He, he gave instruction to Adam and Eve. He gave them uh, truth to live by. And then Genesis 3, what happens? We have somebody else who introduces a competing truth claim. You know, Satan comes along and, and questions what God has said. And, and he said, hey, did God really say that? Is that really true? And so now Adam and Eve have a choice. Are they going to believe what God has, has said and God has spoken? Or are they going to, to trust and believe in another truth claim? Uh, and that question that, that they had in front of them that day, uh, we face each and every day as well. Uh, because the, the culture around us is constantly uh, preaching. Uh, it's constantly proclaiming a message to us. It's constantly holding up truth claims to us that we have to either choose to, to believe or or disbelieve. Uh, and so that presents us with, with this constant pressure of having to evaluate truth, right? And I don't know about you guys, that's, that's exhausting, but it's something that we have to do as we're going to see uh, today in, in Colossians 2 because if we make a wrong decision about what's true and what's not, it can have far-reaching implications. Because again, if you, if you think that, that we have evolved uh, from you know, single-celled organisms and that science is the ultimate authority, then, yeah, then there's this huge pressure for us to find a new planet. Uh, but if you don't believe that, if you believe that, that God has created us in his image and he's, we have sinned against him and, and that salvation and redemption comes through Jesus, then, then we build our lives around something completely different. And as we look at, uh, at Colossians 2 uh, this morning, that's, that's what Paul is saying to the Colossians. They have a, a competing truth claim 
that is being presented to them. Uh, this false teaching is, is beginning to uh, enter into the church and Paul is writing to encourage them not to depart from the one who has created them, the one who has sustained them, Jesus Christ. So uh, we're going to be looking at verses 8 through 10 in Colossians chapter 2 this morning, but just kind of to get the context and the lay of the land, we're going to read uh, verses 6 all the way through 15 uh, to under- better understand uh, where we're going. So uh, read along with me, Colossians chapter 2. Paul writes, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ." having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Let's pause there and and pray. Gracious God, Lord, you are the God of all truth. Uh, You are sovereign. You are infinitely wise. You are infinitely good. You cannot lie. It is not a part of your character and that... That is amazing to us um, because, Lord, we are capable of lying. And not only are we capable of it, but we do so often. We are capable of being deceived. We are capable of following falsehoods, uh, Lord. But you always speak truth. Uh, You do not lie. You cannot be deceived. So, Lord, we praise you and thank you. We ask that you would grant us your wisdom. Oh, Lord, that you would help us to understand what you have written down to us in your word, that you would help us to apply it first and foremost to our hearts, uh, that we would genuinely believe what is written here, that we would assess the danger that we face, and that ultimately we would respond to it in faith in you, in your goodness, in your sovereignty. Lord, help us to live our lives in light of the truth that we see in your word today. We ask this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. So what we're going to see here uh, today in in Colossians 2 verses 8 through through 10 is is Paul warning the Colossians uh, of of this existence of of an invisible battle uh, a, a battle of ideas uh, of truth claims uh, and he's going to to issue a warning to them uh, that in essence the world around them uh, is going to be attempting to influence their thinking uh, not to draw them to Christ but away from Christ uh, and that invisible battle that was uh, there in the garden uh, at creation, that was there in the first century of the early church, is still with us today in the 21st century. Uh, the world around us still wants us 
to be influenced by uh, our culture, by uh, their ideas, instead of uh, pursuing Christ. So, so how can we survive this battle? Uh, how how should we respond in in light of uh, this wartime uh, existence that we live in? Well, we say today we're, we're going to look at three three observations about this battle of truth that that we need to to take note of and and truly embrace with all of our minds so that we can arm ourselves for war. Because if there really is a battle, what do you want to bring into battle? Yeah, you, you want to bring weapons to war. Uh, and I haven't seen Hacksaw Ridge, but I've heard that's a good movie. He didn't carry a gun or whatnot. But, but we can't be that way. We, we have to bring weapons into uh, this conflict of ideas. And uh, we're going to make three observations about what we see here today. The first one being uh, the danger of becoming a captive of false teaching. Now that's the first part of uh, verse 8 where Paul writes, see to it that no one takes you captive. Okay, so uh, earlier in Colossians 1, uh, verse 13, uh, Paul, Paul explains that believers have been, been rescued from the domain of darkness. Uh, that we have been transferred into the kingdom of light, the kingdom of Christ. Uh, and Though we have been, been rescued and our citizenship has been changed, we're still living in enemy territory. Right? Our citizenship is in heaven, but we still exist here on the earth. So we're living in enemy territory. Uh, so we have to understand what that looks like to live in enemy territory when our citizenship uh, is elsewhere. So we, ha- we have to develop a wartime mentality. If, if you're living uh, with enemies surrounding you, you have to understand that. And the command here is... Uh, to, to watch, to be ready. It's literally uh, keep a lookout, uh, see to it that no one takes you uh, captive. Now, we are to perceive the danger and to watch out for it. Uh, and uh, the way things are worded here uh, in the Greek, it's, he's not talking about a, a hypothetical danger. Uh, he's talking about a, a danger that we can be assured of. Uh, literally, uh, it would be uh, watch. Uh, be, because if you don't watch, uh, there will be someone who will take you captive. Uh, and that idea of being taken captive is carried away, uh, kidnapped. You know, t- taken away as, like in warfare, when, when someone comes and plunders a town, they take away whatever they want. Uh, and that's the idea here of, hey, the, these uh, concepts and ideas, if we're not on the lookout, will carry us away. Uh, so the warning is continuously watch out. Uh, there's there's no moment for for pause or, or rest in this. So we have to constantly be on the lookout because there will be someone who who wants to take us captive. Um, you may have heard back in in 2014 of of 276 Nigerian schoolgirls who uh, who were who were kidnapped from their boarding school uh, by the terrorist organization known as Boko Haram. Uh, now, in October of 2016, uh, 21 of those girls were, were released, uh, and several weeks ago, another 82 were released in, in exchange for five leaders of the terrorist organization. So there are still 113 girls who remain in captivity. And that's sobering, isn't, isn't it? Of t- to, to imagine living in a country where at any moment in time an entire school of children could be taken taken captive, taken hostage, uh, and carried away from their parents for years. Uh, now, we don't live in a, in a country where we fear that, uh, that we, f- 
we fear that our, our, our children will be taken away from us physically uh, by an entire, you know, in, in mass. Uh, but what we need to realize is that there is always an imminent danger that we or our children can be carried away, taken captive, not physically, but intellectually, spiritually, by concepts, by ideas. Uh, so, so we must always be, be ready. We must heed this warning. We must see that there is a danger around us. Um, and, and in this constant battle for the mind, we have to understand that everything that, that is around you preaches and proclaims something. So that's every, every movie, uh, every TV show, uh, every internet blog, uh, newspaper article, even though you're like, what's a newspaper? Um, they don't, they don't have them physically, but online. But every, everything that you hear throughout the day is presenting to you a worldview, uh, an explanation of creation and of existence. And we have to understand that. Uh, that, that something is, is constantly presenting a message to us, so we, we constantly have to be on the lookout for those things. Uh, we, we constantly have to be aware of the message and what it's proclaiming so that we can filter it and sort through, hey, is this something I need to listen to or something I need to, to reject? And it's, it's interesting here. Last, last, or I guess two weeks ago, since last week was Mother's Day, uh, two weeks ago we saw the first command in Colossians. And what was that first command in verse 6? What are they supposed to do? They're supposed to, as they received Christ Jesus, they are to walk in Him. So the first command that Paul issues here is walk, follow Christ. Uh, and the second command he issues is, in essence, watch. He says you're, you're to walk after Jesus and you are to watch and be on guard as you're walking. Uh, and what Paul is proclaiming is, is not anything new because those are exactly the same truths that, and commands that Jesus issued. Uh, Matthew uh, chapter 4, uh, when he's calling these guys, uh, Peter, uh, Andrew, John, James, who are fishermen, he says, hey, follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. Later on, he says, if anybody wishes to, to come after him, what must they do? Take up their cross, deny themselves, and, and follow Jesus. And then later on, when, when the, a rich young ruler comes to Jesus uh, and says, hey, what must I do to be saved? Jesus, what does he tell him? Hey, sell everything and follow me. So this concept of walking after Christ isn't new to Paul. It's actually what Jesus proclaimed. And then additionally, Jesus, uh, if you look at the end of Matthew, over and over again, he issues warnings to his disciples. He says, hey, be on guard. Watch out because there's going to be false teachers within the church and there's going to be those uh, that are wanting to, to influence you from without. So the basic demands of Christian discipleship throughout history have always been follow Jesus and keep your eyes alert on the way. Walk and watch. And that's what we see here. So, so if that's what we are called to do, is to, to follow Jesus and then to be aware uh, of what's going on around us, to watch out for, for false teaching uh, around us, in what ways have you already been taken captive by the preaching of the world? In what ways have you already believed lies? And, um, and interestingly enough, how do we... How do we discern what's lie and what's truth? How do we figure that out? There's, there's only two ways. Uh, number one, first and foremost, it's through the Word of God. Because God doesn't lie to us. He speaks truth. So if we're going to identify what's truthful and what's uh, falsehood, we have to understand God's Word and hold everything that's coming at us uh, kind of, and use this as a filter, uh, use it as a lens by which we look at the world around us. Uh, that, that's first and foremost. Uh, we, we need to understand and know God's Word. Secondly, we have to be in and around God's people. 
Because even in knowing God's word, what do we tend not to see in ourselves? The lies that we believe are our own sin. We are blind to our blind spots. So we need community. We need others around us to help us see, hey, you know what? God's word says this, but you're, you're living in this way. So hey, let, let's begin to live like this. Let's begin to, to live uh, in submission to Christ and what he is calling us to do. Uh, and th- those are two big values here at Ambassador. Hey, the Word of God and the fellowship of the saints. Of, of we need one another. The Christian life is not intended to be lived on our own. Uh, our, our pastor of our sending church would always say, uh, a lone ranger is a dead ranger in the Christian faith. Uh, and we need to, to understand that and genuinely believe that and not uh, go through seasons of, oh, I can do this on my own and I don't need God's Word and I don't need God's people. Because when, when we say no to those two things that can help us assess truth, that's when we're in the greatest danger. We've just eliminated any kind of, of feedback, uh, any kind of outfly, outside influence upon our thinking. And... and so even, even beyond of, hey, what, as we ask ourselves, what ways am I believing lies? What, what, what lies from the culture have I believed? We also have to ask kind of an even more fundamental question of, do you truly believe that there is a battle of ideas taking place right now? Do you believe that that is true? Because if you don't necessarily believe that is true, you're not going to act. Uh, if you don't believe that there are ideas that are hostile to you uh, and that can can be harmful to you, if you don't believe that, you're not going to be on guard against them. If you don't sense any danger, you're like, yeah, I'm okay. Uh, and that's when we are at uh, our greatest peril. Uh, 2 Corinthians 10, uh, verses 3 through 5, uh, Paul, Paul talks about this spiritual warfare. He says, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. So again, he says, hey, we're not fighting a battle of, uh, a physical battle, we're fighting a battle of ideas. Verse 4, he says, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. And then verse 5, he says, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. So that, again, Paul explains, hey, we have to be uh, ready to to battle ideas. Uh, and again, you can't, you know, karate chop an idea. Uh, someone presents falsehood, you're like, no, uh, that that doesn't work. We we have to be ready to combat truth with uh, or error with truth. Now, we have to do that. Uh, the uh, I loved what an older gentleman at our church also used to say of of we must develop a combat knowledge of scripture. Uh, we have to memorize and meditate upon the word so that we know uh, what it's saying. And when we hear uh, falsehood, we immediately know uh, what what verse to to bring out to combat that that lie. Uh, and so that's what we need to to understand is we need to to root ourselves in God's word, develop that combat knowledge, and then uh, surround ourselves with other soldiers, others who are in the battle, in the fight with us. Uh, to encourage us, to challenge us, to help us uh, in that fight. Paul warns us to be on the lookout. And he tells us what will happen if we, if we don't heed the warning. We will be taken captive. It's an assurance there. And next he describes what we are to be on the lookout for. He describes the method of warfare that we face, which is the second observation that we can make here about this, this battle of ideas that the method and the marks uh, that identify false teaching are seen in the second half uh, of verse 8. So he says, See to it that no one takes you captive 
by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. See, after, after alerting his readers to the danger, Paul now explains uh, why or the way in which the Colossus might be taken captive. You're like, okay, so I'm ready to stand guard. Now, what am I, what am I looking out for? Uh, I know I need to be on the lookout for something, but what am I watching for? Uh, and ultimately, what, uh, what we think of as we think of philosophy, philosophy is literally just a love of wisdom. Uh, it's, it's to love, uh, have an affection for, for truth, for learning, for knowledge. And ultimately, that should describe us. That's a good thing, to desire knowledge, to desire truth, uh, to, to not want to, to live after a lie. Those are good things. So philosophy here has a different kind of connotation than just um, what we think of as, you know, we think of the, uh, somebody, an academic, who, who just deals purely in, in ideas. But the way Paul deals with philosophy, uh, the way the word is used at this point in time is literally any type of worldview. Uh, Josephus, the, the Jewish historian, refers to the Pharisees and the Sadducees as philosophies. Um, he, he points out, uh, another historian writes, that, that everything that had to do with theories about God and the world and the meaning of human life was called philosophy at that time. Not only in the pagan schools, but also in the Jewish schools of the Greek cities. So, kind of what I was talking about uh, earlier of this idea of everybody has a worldview and everyone is, is living out of that worldview. And what Paul is saying here is there is a deceptive worldview, a deceptive philosophy that can take you captive. Uh, that, that is the way people are taken captive is by building upon uh, a philosophy that is deceptive. And that explanation of, he says, by philosophy and empty deceit, he's really talking about one thing rather than two. It's not philosophy and empty deceit, but it's, it's philosophy that is deceptive. Uh, and ultimately, that's what, uh, that's what lies do, right? They don't necessarily come out and announce that they're false. Uh, they, they present themselves as being true, and that's what uh, the world views, the philosophy uh, of the culture around us, that's what it does. It doesn't come out and say, hey, I'm, I'm trying to lead you astray. It doesn't say I'm, I'm trying to, to get you to act in a way that would uh, be uh, false or inconsistent, but... That is ultimately what it is. It is a hollow and deceptive philosophy that was being proclaimed to the Colossians. And ultimately, it's philosophy is empty. Uh, one, one pastor notes, he says, Thus, the philosophy which claims to be full of insight and rich with reward is, in fact, a life which is empty, futile, and vain. The deceit seduces with promises of great rewards, but leads only to hollow disappointments. That, that is what a philosophy uh, that is deceptive is based upon. Again, not, not a, hey, a love of learning and, and understanding and an appreciation for truth. That's not what Paul is talking here, but he's talking about a, a worldview system built upon lies. And ultimately, what he talks about next is, is what marks this system of deceptive philosophy. And he, and he, he puts forward three marks, and it's, each of them is introduced by and according to uh, and, and the first one is, how do you know if something is a deceptive philosophy? First and foremost, it is, it's according to the tradition of men. Uh, it, its source is found in man, and then it's just passed on from man to man, from generation to generation. 
And interestingly enough, uh, if you guys have interacted with philosophers, uh, most philosophers, all that they do is build upon the ideas of a previous philosopher. They say, hey, here, this, you know, previous philosopher had this idea, let me, let me cross that out and then build something else. And, and that's all it is, is this passing down of, uh, idea of idea. It's, it's a house of cards on shifting sand, is really what it is. Uh, and that's also just our contemporary, uh, culture of what they, what they put forth. Uh, and something that can be said to be merely the tradition of men when it when it does not point others to the truth of God's word. Uh, see, there's also a tradition that we have in the church, which is a which is a good tradition because it's rooted and built it uh, founded upon God's word. But when it's just something of, uh, hey, here's a tradition of man, uh, let, let's follow that. Uh, and actually, Jesus condemned that. If you guys, if you have your Bibles, turn over to to Mark chapter seven, uh, because Jesus confronts. The Pharisees in something that they had, where they had exalted their their tradition. Okay, um, if you look at Matthew seven and read along with me, uh, the first thirteen verses in Matthew seven. Now, when the Pharisees, uh, who again believed a philosophy, gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples. Ate with hands that weren't that were defiled, that is unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. So, so what was the tradition here? Hey, you got to wash your hands before you eat. You got to do this ceremonial cleansing and and then be clean and eat with clean hands. Which you're like, hey, that sounds hygienic. That could be a good thing. Uh, but it was not necessarily something that God had commanded. But it was something that was established by who? By man, uh, but what the Pharisees had begun to do is treat it, treat their traditions and what they had taught. They began to treat that as if it was the final authority, as if it was equal with God's word. And in verse four, and when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you, hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave, Jesus says, you leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. Say, so, hey, you, you have forsaken what God has written and instead you have begun to order your life. You've begun to, to live your uh, existence based upon not what God has said, but what you have said. And in verse 9, he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother whatever you wish, uh, whatever you would have gained from me as korban that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition, that if you have handed down and, and many such things that you do. So 
what he confronts them over here is the commandment of God is to take care of your parents, to, to honor them. But what the Pharisees would do is they say, hey, you know what? I'm going to take my money that I should use to, to care for my parents in, as they get older, and I'm going to dedicate that money to God. That's what that concept of korban is. I'm going to dedicate my money to God, and then, oh, you know what? I can't take care of my parents because that money is dedicated to God. That sounds really, really great and spiritual, doesn't it? But Jesus says, no, you, you have... You have forsaken what God has commanded of you to honor your parents and instead you've, you've kind of created this loophole to do what you want to do because you're, you're greedy. Now, there's no greater example of what it looks like to elevate your own tradition and forsake God's word than that. Uh, that that's what Jesus confronted them on uh, and that's what, that's what tradition of men looks like, uh, to follow that instead of following God's word. Now, if we turn back to to Colossians, uh, that was the first according to, that's the first mark of uh, false teaching or of philosophy uh, that is empty. The second mark would be, uh, it's according to the elemental spirits of the world. So, and that, that word, the elemental spirits, it's a really difficult word to understand uh, in the Greek. If you guys have different translations, you might see the element, elemental spirits, you might see elementary principles, you, you may see a different translation. Uh, it literally just means uh, like a, the basic small component of something. And it's used to describe the letters of the Greek alphabet. It's like, hey, those are the basic components of words. It's used to describe uh, music scales. Uh, it's used to describe propositions in geometry. Uh, hey, the, these are the, the, the basics is kind of the idea, the, the smallest uh, foundational unit. So the word could refer to uh, uh, elemental principles of man's teaching. So in it, for instance, like the observance of festivals, which we'll see later on in Colossians. And he uses this same word in that context of, hey, you don't have to, to fa- keep the, you know, the, the, the festival and then a new moon and then a Sabbath. You don't have to, to do all of that because of who we are now in Christ. Uh, and then another uh, possible understanding of it would be to refer to, to angelic uh, beings or elementary spirits, which is kind of how the ESV translates it. But uh, I think the first option is better to understand it as elementary principles. Uh, and if you want to know more on that, uh, you can come talk with me afterwards. But ultimately, I think that's the, the better understanding based upon the context. So what Paul is saying here is, is don't forsake Christ uh, to go back to... The works-based religion. Uh, ultimately, uh, there are... I know earlier we talked about, hey, there's a whole bunch of worldviews. Every worldview is proclaiming something. Uh, but you could also further categorize them and put them in two categories. Okay, uh, Every other religion, every other worldview uh, in, in existence would say that the way to get to the next life, the way to get to heaven, and there's various understandings on what heaven is and what good works you have to do, to get there, uh, but what they would all agree upon is that you you can earn your way there by being a good person, by having your your good outweigh your bad. Just do those good things, and then you can get there. But contrasted with with Christianity, Christianity is the only religion that says actually you can't do that. It says there's no way that you can earn your way to heaven. There's no way that that you can earn the favor of the God that you have rebelled against. It's impossible. Uh, and so, the, o- the only way to, w- or what the Bible would proclaim, is that it's not trying to earn your way to heaven, but it's actually acknowledging that you can't get to heaven in your own strength. Uh, it's saying, God, I've sinned against you, and I realize that there's no way for me to make things right with you. 
Uh, there's no way for me to, to earn that back. Uh, and the Bible says it's not earning your way, but simply trusting in Christ. Of acknowledging, I can't do this, but Jesus did it for me. He lived a perfect life for me. Uh, he died for me on the cross and paid the penalty for my sins. That, I, that He paid the debt that I owed. When we, when we read Colossians uh, 2 earlier, it talked about that, that I can't wait to, to teach on this in a couple of weeks. So, uh, God took our sins, the debt that we owed with its legal demands, and he nailed it to the cross of Christ. So that debt has been paid. It's no longer uh, considered that we owe God if we place our faith in Jesus. He lived a perfect life. He died on the cross for us. And now he has rose from the grave and has ascended into heaven uh, where he continues to act on our behalf. Uh, and that his resurrection and ascension prove that he has power over death. Uh, and now God offers, instead of saying, hey, you have to earn salvation, God says, no, it's a free gift if you believe in Jesus. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So I think that is what Paul is, is saying here. Don't, don't turn away from Christ and go back to these elementary religious principles where you feel like you have to earn your salvation. Don't go back to trying to earn your way to God when it's all based upon faith in Jesus. Uh, and uh, that would be, a, you can call it legalism, of trying to, to earn salvation. Uh, and we'll talk about that more in the coming weeks because Paul expands on that later on in the letter. But ultimately, the traditions of men and the elementary principles of the world are the first two marks of false teaching. Uh, and, and these first two highlight what false teaching is, right? Uh, but then the last mark of false teaching highlights and emphasizes what it is not. And that is, it is not according to Christ. And ultimately, that is the biggest problem with the philosophy of the world that is, uh, that is empty, that is deceitful. The philosophy of the world uh, has, uh, it doesn't have Christ as its source and it doesn't have Christ as its substance. Uh, that is the big issue with uh, philosophy that is deceptive and deceitful. Uh, and this little statement of, hey, that this philosophy of the world is to be rejected simply because it is not according to Christ, that, that's a huge statement. It's, it's, an, it's a summary of an entire theological principle uh, because it's saying, hey, if it's not according to Jesus, then just reject it. And all of that is built upon Colossians 1 of what we saw of who Jesus is, that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, everything on earth and in heaven has been created, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Uh, that statement uh, is built upon that truth in Colossians 1. And, and because Christ is the creator and sustainer of everything, because he's died on the cross to save us from wrath, because in him are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, Colossians 2, 3, we are supposed to build our entire understanding of our existence upon him. That's what that little statement means, of, and not according to Christ. If everything else is worthy of being rejected. Paul is actually encouraging a philosophy a worldview that is according to Christ here. See, see, it's not just rejecting philosophy altogether, but hey, no, be a lover of wisdom, be a lover of truth, but make sure that that truth is built upon and founded in Christ. 
And Paul condemns any worldview or any individual idea that is not according to Christ. Because if it's not according to Christ, what, what is it characterized by? It, it's, it's some kind of tradition of man. It's some kind of elementary teaching of the world. So then we have to ask, what, what is our understanding of the world based upon? Now, is it according to man's tradition and understanding? Is it according to the basic teachings of the world around us? Or is it according to Christ? Does Christ stand as Lord over your thinking? Now, this is uh, the doctrine of Christian thinking uh, in, this, in this verse today. Uh, of uh, is, Does Christ uh, rule over what you think about and how you think about? What you determine to be truth and what you determine to be false? When the Bible conflicts with science, psychology, or cultural morals... What do you build your beliefs upon? Which one of those do you, cho- when you, do you choose to believe when they butt heads? Uh, do, you, do you believe the changing opinion of man or the steady word of God? See, science uh, is always right in its own generation. But what do, what do later generations understand about science? Yeah. Uh, see, we understand all of the errors of previous scientists, don't we? What do we not understand in our generation? The current errors. Uh, and so science is constantly changing, but what hasn't changed? God's word. So again, what is it that you're going to to base your life upon? So some additional things to think about. Parents, do you filter the information and media uh, and friends that your children interact with so as to guard them against ideas that might take them captive? That's that's your responsibility. Even even more sobering of, hey, parents and adults, uh, are you aware of... uh, what kind of thoughts and ideas, what philosophy that you are taking in each and every day? Uh, are, are you aware of what's coming at you? Do you see it? Do you understand it? Uh, because if you can't see it, if you can't discern it, you're going to be in trouble. You're in danger of being taken captive. I, I love this verse in, in Job uh, chapter 12, verse 11. He says, Does not the ear test words as the palate tastes food? See, that's what we should strive to, to do. And in learning the Word of God and being around God's people, we should be able to test ideas just with our ear. Uh, in the same way that uh, the, the palate tastes food. Earlier today, we, we just start, got this new coffee maker, uh, and we tried today to make coffee, so if it's bad, we apologize. Uh, so a new coffee maker, you know that, you feel like a, a chemist. Of, okay, how many parts coffee? How many parts water? Uh, what's the temperature? What do we do? Uh, so then Carol says, hey, can you test the, the coffee and, and taste it uh, to see what it's like and determine if, it, if it's right or wrong, if this is the right brew strength. And that's, that's what we're to do with, with ideas that come our way, with our ears of, hey, is this right? Does this sound right? Uh, let me let me go to this, God's word and see what God's word says. And then, hey, if I can't find it in God's word, hey, let me go let me go talk with with Gavin and Johnny. Hey, guys, this is this is what I'm wrestling with. What is this What is this talk about here? Uh, what do you think? What other passages of scripture come to bear on this situation that I'm dealing with, or this idea that I'm that I'm facing at work? Or hey, my my kid just came home and he said that he heard this from somebody else. So what do I do with that? That's that's what we need to do. We need to be aware of the ideas that are coming our way. Additionally, we have to be aware that there, there may be some lies that we've already believed. And ultimately, every one pastor said, every idol of the heart is based upon a lie the mind has believed. Uh, that, that if we believe a lie, uh, that we will begin to, to seek something else uh, and to pursue something else. And when we pursue something other than Christ, we have created an idol. 
that we are treating something as if it will bring satisfaction and joy and pleasure. It will solve our problems. Uh, we are beginning to worship it rather than worshiping Christ. And once again, the only way for us to understand these falsehoods is by going to the Word and by being in fellowship with God's people. We must understand philosophy according to Christ. And if we understand philosophy according to Christ, it's really easy to identify everything else and, and push it aside, to cut it away. But you might ask, why do I need to, to base everything upon Christ? Why do I need to, to, to establish my life upon, a, upon who Jesus is and what he's done? Uh, why do I need to do that? That's a good question, right? Because if Paul is calling for us to do that here, of, hey, everything that's not according to Christ, just throw it away. Uh, if that's what he's calling us to, th- why should we do that? And that's the, the third observation that we're going to see this morning is the reasons Christ is the standard of true teaching are seen in verses 9 and 10 in Colossians 2. Let's look at that. Verse 9 says, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. And verse 9 is actually the beginning of a long run-on sentence. Or actually verse 8 is. He issues the warning and then uh, verses 9 through 15 are the explanation for why we should obey and heed that warning. And we should listen and, and watch out uh, and be on guard against philosophy. And then 9 through 15 is the reason why we should do that. And oftentimes, like, so uh, we're memorizing uh, a gospel presentation in our uh, growth group on Thursday nights. And Colossians 2.9 is one of our memory verses. Uh, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And, and so oftentimes it's great to memorize uh, verses, but it's, what's even better is to understand the context of those verses. Uh, we, we memorize that verse to, because it points us to who Jesus is, and we'll talk about that in a second, but we also need to understand that who He is, is a reason to obey the command in verse 8. That who Jesus is, and you'll see that on your outline, now that's reason number one. Hey, Jesus is fully God. That's why you should build upon Him. That's why you should live uh, a philosophy, a worldview according to Christ. Uh, and ultimately, this this verse, all I can say is it is amazing. It, it's it's clear. It's concise. I think it's probably the best statement on on who Jesus is in terms of his deity and his humanity in uh, the letters in the New Testament. Uh, and it, it just continues to to clarify on deeper and deeper levels of of who he is. Uh, and well, let's take this kind of uh, one, one little portion at a time. So, in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And, and what this is talking about here, it's not... Um, you, you ever see the, the Blue Man group, the, the performers? Why, why are they famous? How do you identify the Blue Man group? They're blue. Right. Yeah, they're, they're blue, yeah. <laughs> they have blue body paint all over them. So, it, it's well, when we think of Jesus, we shouldn't think of him as having, like, deity-colored body paint that's just kind of, like, gilded... On him, uh, what we need to understand about Jesus is not he, he doesn't have like this kind of spray paint uh, tan on him, but he, at, at his very core, is the fullness of God. You, know, you ever see like the orange juice concentrate? Like in those little cans, what do you have? You have all, everything that you need for juice. You just you add a little bit of water, but the fullness of that uh, is is concentrated in that can, and the fullness of deity is concentrated in Jesus. 
Uh, this this picture of of God dwelling in permanently uh, in Jesus uh, also points back to in the Old Testament. Where did God dwell? He dwelt in the tabernacle and in uh, in the temple, uh, and His presence was was literally there. Uh, and then in Jesus, uh, John one fourteen. John writes, and the Word, speaking of Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us, or literally tabernacled. Jesus pitched his tent among men, dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And and you, you see the waves of this verse. So we see that deity is in Jesus, but it's not just deity, it's all deity. Right, and then it's it's not just all deity, but it's it's the the, the complete fullness. The all deity dwells in Him, and then all the the fu- whole fullness of deity dwells in Him. How bodily? Uh, th- this verse highlights not only Jesus, uh, the fact that Jesus is God, but also the fact that Jesus is man. Uh, and then we'll come back around to that of hey, so why does how does that imp- influence how we we build our lives upon Him? Uh, the reason number two. He, you know, reason number one, he says, Jesus is fully God. And then reason number two in verse 10, because, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. See, there's kind of this play on words here. Uh, hey, you should establish Jesus as the foundation for your life because he is fully God and then you are filled in him. He's full of deity and then you're full of him uh, is, is what Paul is is saying here. And... What's being presented is is this idea of being made complete in Christ. As a believer, if you've placed your faith in Jesus, if you've no longer said, "I'm going to try and earn my salvation," but I want to I want to place my faith in Christ, you have been made complete in Him, uh, and He is the one who is in charge. He is the the head of all rule and authority. But what does it mean to be made full or complete in Jesus? Uh, and notice he doesn't say, usually when we think of like something being filled, usually we, we explain what it's filled with, right? I, I filled a cup with water, uh, or I filled the coffee pot with coffee. Uh, but here it doesn't say what we've been filled with. It just says you have been filled in him, meaning like he's the one doing the filling. And uh, so... By not saying specifically how we are filled or what we are filled with, it's almost like Paul is saying we, we have been filled with everything. Now, we have been made complete. We have been filled with everything, all that we need. Uh, one pastor said, perhaps Paul's point is not uh, to point out just what we are filled with, but rather to indicate that because of our union with Christ, who is the fullness of God in human flesh, we have no lack of anything we need that we are brought to utter fullness in every circumstance and find thus God's purposes completed in and through and to us. So in essence, what, what's being said here is that in our union with Christ, we get everything that we need. You know, there's nothing that, that's missing. There's nothing that, that's lacking uh, or, or falling away. Uh, if you turn over, a uh, phenomenal picture of this is in the most famous psalm, Psalm 23. Okay, a, a psalm of David and David reflecting on this, and he, he paints such an amazing picture of what is it? What does it look like for God to give you everything that you need? We see it in Psalm twenty-three. It says a psalm of David. He says, "The Lord is my shepherd; 
I shall not want, meaning I shall, I won't lack. I'm not going to be missing anything that I need. And in verse 2, He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. That, that's, that's the picture of what it means for us to be made complete in Christ. That he gives us everything that we need. He, he brings us to exactly where we need to be. Now, he gives us peace. Uh, and even in times of, of trial, even in times of, of, of struggle and, and difficulty, God is right there with us. And we have everything that we need, even in those circumstances, to live righteously, to live according to what God wants us to do and be. Now, additionally, going back to uh, John chapter 1, one fourteen talks about uh, Jesus, the Word of God, coming and dwelling among His people. Then verse 16, two verses later, John writes, For from His fullness... From the fullness of Jesus, we have all received grace upon grace. Second Peter 1, verses 3 and 4 also say, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. We have everything that we need, all things that pertain to life and godliness through Christ. That's what it looks like to be made complete in Him. Uh, so, so then how does that impact how do those two things impact the, our, our basing our lives upon Christ? Uh, and ultimately, everything that, that we believe about Jesus will impact the way that we live. And so if, if you believe that something is missing in your life, if you believe, oh, I just need this one other thing to make me happy. I just need one other thing. That is a misunderstanding of this verse. Uh, we begin to pursue things other than Jesus because we don't understand that we have been made complete in Jesus. That He is all that we need uh, to be satisfied. That He is all that we need in this life uh, in order to live righteously. It's not that we need something else. And uh, oftentimes we can misunderstand our standing and our union with Christ. And that leads us into error. That leads us into uh, idolatry. Men, we can, we can try and find identity in our work uh, because we don't understand that our identity is in Christ. Uh, ladies, we, we, you can try and find satisfaction in relationships. You can try and find satisfaction in your children instead of... Uh, and, and when you're doing that, you're also misunderstanding that the greatest and, and richest deepest satisfaction comes not from your husband, not from your children, but in your relationship with Christ. You can point every every idolatry that we have, every sin that we commit back to a misunderstanding of this reality, that we have been made complete in Jesus, that He is all that we need, that He is our uh, our greatest joy, He can be our deepest satisfaction, and we are called to to live in Him. So, so Paul is saying, hey, you should, you should build your existence and found your life upon Christ because of who He is and then because of who you are now, united with Him. You are a new creation, so don't continue to live as you once did, but now live based upon who you are. 
And so, so we have to ask this question of, so if, if you are a believer in Jesus, do you truly believe this concept that, that you have been made complete in Christ? And that there's nothing else missing, uh, that He is your all in all satisfaction, joy, pleasure. And, and if, if that's not how you feel, you need to remind yourself of that. You need to begin to live in light of this truth. And when you feel, hey, I'm missing something, I need something else, this will make me happy instead. No, you need to come back to this truth right here, that you have been made complete. You have been filled in the one who is full of deity, who is the head of all rule and authority. That is why you should be, you should root your life in him and be built up in him. Uh, to point back to Colossians 2.6, but... Uh, so, we are called to, to treasure Jesus, the God-man, more than anything else. Uh, this morning we've seen uh, the, the danger of, of becoming captive to false teaching. We, we've seen the method and marks that identify false teaching. And we've seen why we should hold up Jesus as the standard of all true teaching. So, what do we do with all of this? Uh, we, we've talked about this I, this the kind of individual points and application, but what about collectively? Because we, we began by talking about this, this battle of ideas, this battle of, of truth and falsehood. Uh, so what do we do with that as Christians? Uh, some, uh, back in, in the 19, uh, first part, first 50 years of the, the 20th century, there's this big debate in the church, uh, between, uh, fundamentalists, uh, who, when they began to see the errors of the liberal church and the church wandering away, the fundamentalists said we need to break with them and to break from society and kind of uh, separate ourselves completely and not interact with anybody else. And then uh, there's another group uh, kind of that's separated from the fundamentalists known as the evangelicals that said, hey, you know, we believe in the same truths that you do, but we don't believe that we're supposed to forsake any interactions with the world. Because, again, we're, we're supposed to, to be ambassadors for Christ. How can you be an ambassador uh, if you, unless you're going to another, uh, to another group? Uh, you, you can't do that. And, and our heart here uh, at Ambassador Bible Fellowship uh, is to be exactly that, to be ambassadors for Christ. Not to, not to pull away from the world in, in every way and, and cut off all relationships, but this reality to, to discerningly and intelligently interact with uh, the, the lies of the world. Uh, because we, we need to call people out from those lies. And if we truly believe that, that those lies are, have taken people captive, what do we want to do? Do we want to leave those people in captivity? No, we want to make every effort to, to release them. And how are, how are people who have been taken captive by lies, how are they released? Only by truth. There's no other way. Uh, and so we need to, to be there to understand uh, deception, to identify it, but also to be there with truth uh, and to, to interact with them in a loving and gracious way, not in an angry way, uh, but, but demonstrating the character of Christ even as we beg and implore people to be reconciled to God through Jesus. And this reality that, that we are called to be ambassadors uh, and that we are dealing with lies and, and falsehood and we're, we're in uh, at the front lines of this battle of ideas this, this really should challenge us to be in the word now, this really should challenge us to be in fellowship and this really should challenge us to be going to the lost because they have been taken captive we must bring them Christ 
must carry the message of the gospel to them. I'll close with this quote from, from a pastor. He says, Everyone has a choice whether to follow human wisdom or to come to Christ. To follow human wisdom is to be kidnapped by the emissaries of Satan and his false system, which leaves a person spiritually incomplete. To come to Christ is to come to the one who alone offers completeness. May those of us who have found Christ never doubt his sufficiency by turning aside to follow any human wisdom. May that be us. May we not turn away from Christ if we have come to know him. And if, if you are here and you haven't come to know him, we, w- we would love to introduce you to him, uh, to talk with you more if you have any questions. And uh, we're, we're thankful that, you, that you guys are here. Uh, we've had this time to, to worship together. And let's, uh, let's just close in prayer now. <laughs>